0: All right, so I want to do something, maybe a little exercise for a moment, maybe not used to, but I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you own a beautiful ceramic vase. Or for those, you know, higher-end folk, vase, okay? (laughs) You own a beautiful ceramic vase. And it's so beautiful, it's so stunning, that every time someone comes to your house, they cannot help but to stop. And admire the beauty of this object. And then one day, your maybe four kids, that's how many I got. Your, your little crew starts running through the house, right? Doing what kids do. roughhousing, yelling, screaming, and then slamming into the stand that your beautiful ceramic vase was sitting on top of. And they knocked it over, and it hit the ground, and it smashed into dozens of pieces. In that moment, it'd be ruined, right? What good is this thing? What well, what's once beautiful is now just broken shards that are destined for the garbage. Well, maybe. You know, in Japan, potters have long practiced this redemptive and restorative act that they call kintsugi, which means golden joinery. And so they, what they do is they use this art. And these Japanese masters, they find these broken vessels and they repair them with golden lacquer so that it, it looks even more beautiful at having first been broken. In Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11, it says, God has made everything beautiful in its time. And this is the reality that we see played out in the book of Ruth. It's a story that begins with famine and death and ends with marriage and birth. It's a story that begins with great sorrow and bitterness and ends with great joy. It's a story that begins with longing for redemption. And then it ends with the characters finding a redemption that is greater Than anything they could have ever fathomed. God has truly made things beautiful in the lives of Naomi and Ruth. And today we are going to consider this together from chapter four. And there's some things that we get to. In our household, we call them get to things. You know, there are is things and get to things. It is what it is and get to things. This is a get to thing from the story of Ruth. We get to be reminded of God's grace this morning. We get to be reminded of his kindness, his love for his children, and we get to be reminded of our greatest need, which is redemption of our souls. For the potter to make something beautiful out of our brokenness. So what this passage will clarify for you, my prayer is that it clarifies for you That you can truly trust God in times of darkness. That you can truly trust God in the mundane of your life. That you can trust him in the bleak moments of your existence. That God really does bring all things together for good. For those who love him and are called according to his purposes. That's Romans 8.28. What chapter 4 teaches us about is God's sovereign redemption. And what it teaches us about redemption is that it is costly. For redemption to take place, it has a cost. It also teaches us that what it produces in us is a true wholeness that we cannot attain outside of God's sovereign hand. And lastly, it teaches us that God's sovereign redemption is greater than anything we could have ever imagined. So what we're going to focus on first in chapter 4 is the reality that redemption is costly. It comes with a cost. And we see this kind of pulled out from verses 1 through 11. Before, but before we start tracking through first verses 1 through 11, we need to deal first with this legal process of redemption because that's what the text deals with first. You, you might have you know, listened as Russell was reading, going, why are they throwing sandals? And like, what is happening? There's a whole legal process that's going down, and it's important that we understand it. It makes a lot more sense. One of the first things that we encounter in this story is that Naomi and Ruth need a family redeemer, is what the CSB says. Or what maybe some of your translations say is a kinsman redeemer. So that naturally begs the question, right? What is that? What is a kinsman redeemer? So I want to spend some time and define this for you. Make it really clear, hopefully simple. A kinsman redeemer in this day and age, in this practice, in this time in history, is a relative who is male, who according to the various laws given to us in the Pentateuch or the first five books of the Bible, had the privilege or responsibility to act on behalf of a relative who was in trouble or in danger or in great need. It is a relative who would stand in the gap for someone else. And redeem something that they could not redeem themselves. It comes from the Hebrew word goel. Which designates that this is one person who will deliver or rescue or redeem a property or a person or a group of people. And it is a kinsman or a family member who redeems or vindicates a relative who's in great need. The clearest example of this, this process... And all of the scriptures is found here in the book of Ruth and its function and what it looks like to follow it to the T. And if you'll remember in chapter 3, Boaz says, yeah, I want to redeem you, Ruth and Naomi. I want to be the kinsman redeemer. I'm going to marry you. That's kind of where Pastor Stephen left off last week. And what that means, though, is that he is committing himself to raising an heir Who will take on the name of a deceased man and provide for Naomi. But as soon as Boaz makes the decision to do this, a complication in the story immediately happens, right? Because nothing is easy in life, amen? (laughs) Right. There is another relative in line before Boaz. So he's like standing at the queue at Six Flags, right? And there's a guy in front of him before he gets on the roller coaster, essentially, right? So he has to do something. If he wants to marry Ruth, he has to do something about this problem, which implicitly tells us that Boaz is at a decision point. He can either go about solving this problem in an unrighteous, ungodly manner, he could lie, he could cheat. He could deceive, he could cut a corner, or he can be faithful to God's word and the legal process that God has outlined in the first five books of the Bible. He can go about it righteously or unrighteously. Boaz has a decision to make. And this is kind of like a very small point, but I think it really matters for us today. Because I would say that one of the things that I counsel members of our church through the most is making biblical decisions. I don't know what to do. What do I do, Pastor Neil or Pastor Stephen? And so we open up the book, right? And we walk it out. But it kind of begs the question, I think, at least for me, is like, why is making decisions sometimes really hard? Can I get an amen? Amen. Yeah. Am I the only one? (laughs) I'm amongst friends, right? (laughs) It's tough. Why is it so hard to make good decisions, righteous decisions? Well, for believers, if you are in Christ, if you have put faith in Jesus, it can be incredibly difficult to make the right call in a difficult circumstance because there is a war waging inside of you i don't know if you may know this or not but there is literally a war waging in you the apostle paul tells it this way in galatians 5 15 i'm sorry 16 through 17 he says i say then walk by the spirit and you will certainly not carry out the desires of the flesh for the flesh desires what is against the spirit And the spirit desires what is against the flesh. And these two are opposed to one another so that you don't do what you want to do. So what Paul essentially says is uh, our flesh is at war with the Spirit of God if we are in Christ. So what happens if you have put your faith in Christ, you are trusting and following Him, right? Repenting of your sins. God has given you His Spirit to indwell you, to live in you. Amen? That's a good thing, y'all. But immediately what happens is the old self doesn't want to give up ground. For someone who's not in Christ, you live according to your nature. You will do what the flesh wants you to do all the time because why else would we not do that, right? I want to go fish on Sunday morning. I'm going to go fish on Sunday morning. That's what my flesh wants. But I have to make a decision each week to come here and love and experience church and and praise God with you guys, right? But I can tell you what my flesh wants. wants to fish, y'all. (laughs) I never get no time to fish. But it's at war with the Spirit in me. And I can either follow after Christ or follow my deceitful desires. So why is it so hard to make righteous decisions? Well, we make unrighteous decisions when we're not controlled by the Spirit. You will make unrighteous decisions when you are not controlled by the Spirit, which means you yourself uh, has no control. You do what you want to do when you want to do it, right? Because it feels good, it makes you happy, whatever. You also make unrighteous decisions when you are not governed by God's Word because you don't know out of ignorance, Right? And you will always make an unrighteous decision when you seek to glorify yourself or gratify your flesh. You will always end up making the wrong call. So consider this morning how you make decisions, dear Christian. Maybe ask yourself, am I governed by God's word? Are the decisions that I make in life... Governed by God's word. Is God's word going to tell you how to change the oil on your car? No, but He's going to tell you how to treat the mechanic, how to treat your wife or your husband. It's going to tell you how to work with a co worker or under a difficult boss. It's going to help you. So are your decisions governed by God's word? Am I controlled by His spirit? Do I have self control? Meaning, can I control the passions that wage in me, right? When you get on the highway, at about 5 o'clock, when the army lets out, can you control yourself? (laughs) Here's the test. (laughs) And third, are you seeking to glorify God, or are you seeking to glorify yourself in that decision? What we learn from Boaz is that Boaz follows the letter of the law. He is controlled by the spirit. He is governed by God's word and then glorifies God in how he proceeds. So what does this look like actually in the story? Well, in verses 1 through 11, the first thing we see in verse 1 is that he goes to the gate. The gate is an important place. It's a place uh, in this community where all legal transactions take place. So he goes with an expectation to negotiate, right? It's like, are the deal. I'm not recommending books. I'm just saying. All right, he goes there to negotiate, and he he waits for someone. Um, there was another redeemer in front of him, right? We'll call him redeemer. What's his name? Because we don't know, right? So he waits for redeemer. What's his name? And lo and behold, guess who shows up? You can talk. It's all right. <laughs> who shows up? What's his name? Right? What's his name? What's his name? Happens to come by, which is a subtle clue again. From the author to look for God's providence. He didn't know he was going to come by. He happens to come by. So what does Boaz do? He circles up ten of the elders in town. And now all the pieces are now in place for negotiation. He has Redeemer. What's his name there? He has his witnesses. And then notice how Boaz brings up the situation. He does it directly. He doesn't skirt around things. He brings it up directly. With no deception in mind. He says, and this is my uh, Cliff Notes version, all right? Naomi's land is up for grabs. You're next in line. Redeem it if you want it. If not, I'll do it. Pretty simple, right? And verse 4 tells us what Redeemer, what's-his-name response is. He says, essentially, yeah, I'll buy it. I love land, (laughs) right? I want that. So for him, what we clearly see is that he has not counted the cost of redemption yet. Because Boaz then tells him that if you buy this property, then you have to marry Ruth the Moabitess. The one from a foreign land. To redeem this land, you have to marry her as well. And he went full eject in that moment, right? He hit the e-brake, spun around, he was out of there Um, because he was unwilling to pay the cost for redemption. And the cost for him was splitting his inheritance. He was unwilling to do that. And so Boaz acquired the redemption rights for Naomi and Ruth and this land. So what we learn from this story about redemption from Boaz is that redemption is costly. Redemption is sacrificial, and redemption is to be done in a godly way. Manner, It was costly because Boaz had to take on the cost of Naomi, Ruth, and a potential baby. He didn't just get land. There was a real cost. It was sacrificial because he would have to raise a son to carry on the dead's name and not his own. To perpetuate the name of the dead, of the deceased. And it was godly because we see from how Boaz went about the legal process that he did what was right. He followed God's law perfectly in this moment. For something broken to be redeemed, it comes with a cost. It comes with sacrifice. It must be done with godly character. And we have like probably about 90 people in this room right now, right? So I think I could probably suspect... That someone in this room, or m- maybe multiple of you, at one point or another has dealt with the pain of broken relationships. Is that resonating? Probably all of us. For the younger in the room, stand by. It's coming. <laughs> you probably all dealt with broken relationships that need redemption. They need restoration. What Boaz is does for us is he gives us an example to follow a map to navigate by so you may be here this morning with a marriage right now that feels unredeemable impossible you may be here and have a relationship with a loved one that is like utterly impossible you can't do anything about it it drives you crazy well what do you do I want to encourage you to follow Boaz's example for redeeming broken relationships. And the first thing you need to know is you need to count it, count the costs, and be willing to pay the cost. So, what does that look like? Well, maybe in your marriage that is on a razor's edge, as you seek to love and serve them because God calls you to do it, your spouse, in response to that love and service, spews. Venom at you Or in my case Once upon a time Throws hair dryers (laughs) What will you do in response You will have to deny Yourself To follow Jesus Because his way Is higher than Whose way? way My way The second thing is we have to love sacrificially that's what we learn from boaz it will have to be sacrificial you will literally have to make sacrifices for redemption and restoration to take place sacrificing your rights sacrificing what you feel you deserve i hear this from husbands all the time i deserve respect and my wife just cuts me down brother lay down your rights If you're willing to walk forward in a restored and redeemed marriage, lay it down. Yes, you have that right. Lay it down. Let it be your worship for following after Christ in this difficult storm. It may cause you to sacrifice your time and your energy. I remember when our marriage was on this razor's edge and I was living in the most ungodly season of my life. My wife sacrificed her time and energy and lived a pure life and prayed for me consistently. That's what 1 Peter 3, 1 and 2 is all about, wives. Giving up your time and energy to live purely so that you would win your husband back to righteousness. Righteousness. It will take time and energy. But love truly expressed is always sacrificial in nature. And the third thing is to remain godly. If you want to see redemption and broken relationships, if you want to see restoration, it takes godly character. And to have godly character means that you must be transfixed on giving God glory over anything else committed to doing the right thing as defined by God, regardless of personal consequence or cost, I want to see God glorified by my responses, by my actions that I take. And if that is your mission and that is your heartbeat, you may see restoration take place in a dark and broken situation. But I need to be honest with you guys because I'm a realist also. Here's the deal, just because you do these three things, it does not guarantee restoration and redemption. Like there are real consequences for sin. When we cut and maim and sin against one another, there is consequences. And it may not lead towards what you envision, but let me tell you something, God has given you a map to follow. A way to conduct yourself regardless of what the end result is. Because this is right and good. You can control you, right? You can't control other people. You can't change other people's hearts. But you can control the way you walk. Pay the cost. Love sacrificially. Remain godly. This is what you can with surety know what God calls you to do and how he calls you to conduct yourself. The last thing I just want to speak shortly on this point is that um, the costly and sacrificial act of redemption by Boaz, you need to know this, it points to a greater, more sacrificial act of redemption by Jesus. You know, throughout the Old and New Testament, you know who is called the Redeemer the most? God. God redeems his people. He redeemed his people out of Egypt. He redeemed his people from Babylon and Assyria. He redeems his people. He is known as the Redeemer. In the New Testament, we see Jesus at his own expense come to redeem us from what? Our sins through his death on the cross. Hebrews 2.9 and 17 says, But we see Jesus made lower than the angels for a short while, so that by God's grace he may taste death for everyone, crowned with glory and honor. Why? Because he has suffered death to make atonement for the sins of the people. That is the redemption of Christ. So friends, I don't know if you know this or not, but your sins come with a cost. It comes with a consequence. And the consequence is death and God's wrath, eternal separation from God, which is where you belong. And it would be unloving for me not to tell you this, not to plead with you over this. You cannot make yourself right in right relationship with God, in your own power. You cannot redeem yourself. Look at Naomi. The bitter woman could not redeem herself, needed a redeemer. And so do you and I. You can be redeemed through the death and life and resurrection of Jesus Christ, through faith that Jesus did count the cost and did pay it. That Jesus lived and loved sacrificially as he offered himself as a sacrifice in your place. That Jesus died after living a perfectly righteous life according to the letter of the law fulfills it. That he rose from the grave. So are you hoping for redemption in your life outside of Christ? Where is your hope, friends? If you are hoping in somewhere, something else, somewhere, something else, the reality is, the truth is, you will never be made whole. You will never find what you're looking for. You will be like Naomi, longing for redemption and unable to find it. But if you put your faith in Christ, what you will learn is that God's sovereign redemption through Jesus will produce wholeness in you. We get this idea from 11 through 17. It's expressed in a beautiful way. As Boaz's costly act of redemption brought deliverance and wholeness to Naomi and Ruth, we see That reality expressed in blessings and announcements of marriage and birth. So the first blessing given to them by the elders is for Ruth to be like Rachel and Leah. Which essentially is a blessing of fruitfulness. Remember that in Ruth 1, for 10 years or so as she is married to Milan, she is childless. And in need for a redeemer. But look at verse 13. Here's what it says The Lord granted conception to her, and she gave birth to a son. Now, this is the only place in all of Ruth where the author assigns a direct action to God. He does it right here. It's like him going All right, y'all, if you get nothing else, pay attention to this point. God did this. You got a king, which we'll talk about in a little bit. You got a, ting, a king because God did this. Not Ruth and Boaz. God opened her womb and she conceived. He granted. A blessing by redeeming them with a son. And then the second blessing happens months after the baby was born when the women bless Naomi. Look at verses 14 and 15. It says, the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you without a family redeemer today. May his name become well known in all of Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. Indeed, your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. For Naomi, her redemption isn't attributed to Boaz." Naomi's redemption is attributed to this baby boy. God has given Naomi a redeemer through the child. And the women, they prayed that his name, this child's name, would be well known among all of God's people. But then they also give a prophetic word for this boy that his life would impact her life in the future. That he would renew her life in her old age. And then the women bring something up to Naomi's mind that is so incredibly important. They recognized that God was kind to her through Ruth. She loves you far greater, and to use Texas grammar, more better than seven sons. Do you remember in Ruth chapter 1, When Naomi got to Bethlehem, what she told the women, call me Mara, not Naomi, which is the Hebrew word for bitter, because I went away full and came back empty, because the Lord is against me. And what they helped her see is that God has been immensely kind to her, not against her. This is a beautiful thing that the people of God get to do for one another. When we are in despair, when we are bitter, when we are broken, what God does, he sends his children out to remind others of who he truly is. God sends people into your life to comfort you and to help you see when you are blind. So I want to encourage you to watch each other's backs Quite literally, watch over one another because when moments and circumstances crush us, we get real tunnel vision in the moment. We fixate on our pain. And God sends you. You are deployed by God to intercede for behalf of your friends. Watch each other's backs. Be ready to intercede, to remind One another of the great works of God. We need each other's help to see how great God is sometimes, don't we? So are you watching and interceding? Do you know others? Are you known by others? are you just in cruise control in this church? Because if you're in cruise control, you are going to miss out on one of the greatest blessings the Lord gives us. And the result of the blessing to Naomi, we see in verses 16 and 17, she is made whole. What began with loss for Naomi ends with her holding her grandson. And the women gave the grandson the name of Obed, which means servant. But as I told you earlier, this story points to a far greater story. This is like a shadow that's casted off of a great figure. And in Christ, here's the thing it points us to. In Christ, we have redemption that brings wholeness to us. It brings joy to us. It brings satisfaction. So what the New Testament tells us in the Bible, it says that Jesus does some particular things for you and I. He makes all things new. Amen? He gives new hearts. Amen? He gives new clothes for you to wear. Do you know this? He gives you new life or new birth because you are dead in your sins and now you've been made alive with Christ. He gives you everything that you need to be a whole human. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul, or or 3, 3 or 5, he's talking about sin, real gross stuff in the church in Corinth. But the Apostle Paul says, you are living according to your flesh and acting like mere humans. Mere humans is the language he uses. In Christ, we are made whole. We do not live like we do not have. We have been given peace and joy in our salvation. And the joy that comes from being made whole, whole is better than any of the things of the world. You know, it reminds me of Psalm 4, 7, which says, God, you've put more joy in my heart than when wheat and wine abound. You put more joy in my heart than when, whenever I get to feast and party, essentially. I have more joy than those moments from you. By the way, Psalms 4 is a lament. It starts with him breaking over what's going on in his life. And at the end, he says, you have put more joy in my heart than all of this. I am whole because of you. There's joy in knowing and having a relationship with God. Why? Because he never fails. He always provides. He is trustworthy. He is good. He is loving. And he is in control when your world feels out of control. So it begs the question for you to ask your own heart. Do you see God as better than everything else? Is God what brings you wholeness and satisfaction? Or have you been looking and seeking to find it somewhere else? Looking to the bottle. Looking for the promotion. Maybe if my boss changes, then I'll be whole. If I could just get this much more money a month, then I will be made whole. If my wife would just do these things, then our marriage would be whole. If my husband would quit being a, then my marriage would be whole. Fleeting, temporary things. Momentary things cannot satisfy the soul. They are meant to direct us to God, but they are not God. In fact, they are the worst kinds of God. The truth, friends, is that if you look anywhere else, you will leave disappointed and empty. But in Christ, you will be satisfied. In Christ, you will learn that his redemption is better than anything you could imagine. And we see this in verses 18 through 22. So um, I'm going to have to take a little rabbit trail for a moment, Jason. We're going to have to sing doxology. So I'm sorry. Or Jim can help out. I don't know. You know, as I was reading Ruth chapter four, I was really struck by something. You know, in this story, there's no great wedding. Like they just get married and have a baby and keep keep it pushing. (laughs) There's no great wedding, and this is like known as the greatest love story in the Bible. Like of between a family, and there's no wedding. You know, I think at least culturally for us, whenever we watch or read a love story, I mean, we expect the culmination of that love to be this beautiful ceremony, right? This wedding ceremony. I mean, think about every Disney princess movie you have ever seen. Are you guys familiar with Disney princess movies? Okay, we got some veterans in the room, right? It essentially goes like this. Uh, tell me if I'm wrong. Um, Woman longs to be saved by a knight in shining armor. The knight in shining armor then endures and rescues the princess from this great enemy or this great problem. And then together they have to overcome some obstacle that seems impossible, right? And then they get married in a castle and they live happily. Man, you guys, y'all are up on your Disney movies. Right? Right? This isn't the case in Ruth. And I think it's because the author wants us to see that God's sovereign redemption of his people is far greater than what we could ever imagine. Our imagination stops at wedding and a baby. But God's work does not stop there. His redemptive plan does not stop there. He does more and more and more than we could have ever thought was even capable or possible. He blows our minds with his work. It's like he flexes on us and what we think he's able to do. And that's what he does in verses 18 through 22. We are given the genealogy of David. Now that would be really strange if the son of Ruth was insignificant. But he's not. Obed is the grandfather of King David. And what we learn is that the redemption of Naomi and Ruth experienced is far greater than either of them could have imagined. The legacy of Boaz, men, pay attention to this for a minute. The legacy of Boaz, imparted and given to his son Obed, was then imparted and given to his son Jesse, Who then imparted and gave this great legacy to his son, David. And David was the single most important king in the history of Israel. Who was a man after God's own. Who would lead his people towards right worship and following Yahweh like they needed to follow him. At least for a time. It is David where he has promised That he would have a descendant who would forever be the king of God's people. And that descendant of David was Jesus Christ. We learn that in Matthew. So the way Ruth begins in in chapter 1 verse 1 was in the time of the judges. Where people did whatever seemed right to them. It starts in verses 1 through 5 with a family Who endured ten years of sorrow and death and famine and barrenness. And it concludes with ten generations and a crown. For to him who is far more able to do anything we could ever ask or imagine. Ephesians 3.20 says. That's what God's capable of. In the gospel we experience a costly redemption that brings wholeness and satisfaction to our souls in a way that we is better than we could have ever imagined and we get to know Jesus and live today under his reign and his rule now and forever so what does that mean you can trust him in the seasons of your life that are the hardest and you can trust him in the seasons of your life that are the easiest you can trust that he will work all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes that is our god's heart for his children let's stand and pray